Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Brian Deese. He is head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, uh, which now manages somewhat over $7 trillion. Uh, Brian has a fascinating background, both in the White House and Washington, D.C., uh, where he helped uh, draft the, the Paris Climate Accord as well as worked on the bailouts of GM and Chrysler for the Obama administration, and now working in BlackRock. Uh, This is really a fascinating conversation about what is driving sustainable investing, how we can think about climate change and ESG investing, not so much as a value play, but as a form of risk analysis. Uh, It really just, this conversation went to places you probably wouldn't expect it would, and I found it to be absolutely fascinating, and, and I think you will too. So with no further ado, my conversation with BlackRock's Brian Deese. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Brian Deese. He is the global head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, where he focuses on identifying drivers of long-term returns associated with ESG issues. Previously, he was President Obama's senior advisor for climate and energy policy, where he helped to work on the Paris Climate Accord. He also was one of the key architects of the resurgence of the auto industry, participating in the design of the bailout of General Motors and Chrysler. He has been deputy director at the National Economic Council, as well as at the Office of Management and Budget. Brian Deese, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Brian, let's jump right in. I'm kind of intrigued by your background. Your JD is from Yale. How does a legal background help someone in the field of sustainable investing? Well, you know, the joke about uh, people who uh, work in policy is... If you don't have the attention span to go get a PhD, then you go to law school. That's fair. Uh, but <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I, my, most of my background professional focus has been on economics and economic policy. Uh, the uh, legal training and the law degree have been extremely helpful for me in helping have a framework to how to think about issues and uh, break them down and, and put them back together. But uh, I am one of those people who's got a law degree but is uh, not deploying it directly in the practice of law. I want to say the stats, so I, too, have a law degree that I do not uh, deploy. But I want to say it's after seven years, it's something like 50% of us are not practicing law, something like that. Pretty pretty realistic number. So let's talk a little bit about the Obama White House. You were senior advisor for climate and energy policy. What's it like working on those issues in the White House? Well, it's um, complicated, scary, thrilling, fun, frustrating, all of those things. All Everything you would imagine. <laughs> I worked um, all eight years uh, in the uh, during the Obama administration. Most of that time, I was part of his economic team in a uh-huh. variety of different roles and really came at issues. So worked in the post-crisis era, worked on housing finance, the Dodd-Frank and the, uh, mm-hmm. the restructuring after the financial crisis. And through it all, I had a focus on um, energy and climate issues, but from an economic perspective. The last couple of years, the president came and said, I really want to make this a central focus of my second term. We're not moving fast enough. How do we bring all of the different agencies of government together to try to orient internationally and also domestically to do as much as we can? That was uh, my role that involved a lot of coordination, a lot of work internationally, and a lot of work with the regulated industries domestically as well to try to chart a path forward given the tools that we had. So before we delve deeper into sustainable investing and climate change, I have to roll back and ask about the bailouts of GM and Chrysler, sort of antithetical in some ways to sustainable investing, or maybe not. What did you do in that space, and how insane were those years post-09? It had to be crazy. Yeah, it was a pretty insane period. 
I was helping to run then-candidate Obama's economic policy during the campaign. And around end of August, early September 2008, what went from economic policy in a campaign context got devastatingly serious very quickly sure. uh, with the cascading failures of AIG and putting Fannie and Freddie in conservatorship and then the, you know, the, the escalating series of failures uh, over the course of the fall. And when we came in, even during the transition, this question of what to do about the auto industry generally and GM and Chrysler that were uh, quickly running out of cash was front and center. So I was part of a, a, a small team that was tasked with trying to figure out what to do. Number one, it, did we have a way to step in and backstep them? Should we? And three, uh, if the answer to both of those was yes, then how could we actually execute and get this done? So I have a pet theory that if the um, Treasury Secretary is an industrialist, they're very happy to bail out industry and let finance banks and stuff go the restructuring route and vice versa. If they're a financier, then the industries can go through bankruptcy, but they bail out banks as too big to fail. So you guys ended up inheriting the Bush bailouts of the banks and then doing your own industrial policy bailout. Ten years later, how did it turn out? Well, there was actually surprising consistency between the end of the Bush administration, our mm -hmm. view on the need to do something to backstop these companies because of the second and third order effects. I think the you know the the conservative estimates were a million plus jobs on the line because That's it wasn't lot. really about the specific um, direct employees of GM and Chrysler, although there were you know tens of thousands of them, but the suppliers, the dealers, that the 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 auto industry touches. Um, uh, a lot of communities and a lot of jobs. So uh, we were pretty focused in the depth of such a economic downturn. If we could do something that was uh, targeted uh, and effective and that did require a sacrifice from all different stakeholders, the stakes were pretty high, and so we should give it a shot. And that was the, the sort of the core animating thesis behind it, but we did ultimately decide that the way to actually get the level of um, – sacrifice necessary, the, the level of changes in these companies was going to require them going through bankruptcy. And so both companies ended up going through bankruptcy. It was a, a harrowing in lots of respects. Uh, but in hindsight, I believe it's one of the most effective economic policy interventions at the height of a recession. I think we saved more than a million jobs. At the end of the day, we got back more money than the Obama administration invested. And as a whole, the government, uh, the entire effort cost about $10 billion. And so if you look at the jobs and the economic impact that we were able to protect and solve, I feel like it was a an effective and reasonable use of, uh, of taxpayer resources. So then you transition from a government employee, effectively, even though you're on the policy side of it, to one of the biggest investment firms in the world. What is that transition like? Well, you know, in some ways, uh, uh, both large, complicated organizations that have a global reach and that um, uh, so in some ways less difference uh, than you might think uh, between the complexity of the executive branch and the complexity of a big, uh, uh, complicated organization. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, uh, very different in the sense that the same set of issues that I was thinking about and we were working on from the policy side around how do we create the right conditions for private capital to, to move into lower carbon solutions and accelerate the transition to low carbon economy is what we think about uh, at BlackRock, uh, but with a very different lens. The lens being how do we actually deliver for our clients, for our the uh, end, uh, end investors, most of whom are uh, you know, our, our, our pensioners and who have a long-term orientation and are trying to save for long-term goals. So, uh, you know, similarities, but really a different focus on how do you bring the lens of sustainability and sustainable investing to that ultimate goal of delivering financial return ultimately. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about uh, climate change and what we're doing in response to it. You helped to actually draft the Paris Climate Agreement. What was your reaction to seeing the current administration withdraw from that? And how dangerous is it for the United States to not be a part of that? Well, look, I think it's in the, the economic and national security interest of every country to be uh, finding a coordinated solution to this issue. You know, I think the, the impacts, both the physical impacts that we're seeing, uh, that, you know, we we're seeing with our own eyes. Uh, Californians are seeing it. People in the Midwest are seeing Australia. it. Australia. Australia. Uh, and, you know, up and down the East Coast of the United States, uh, we're, we're seeing that everywhere. And we're also seeing the risks from a financial perspective 
of what it means to actually move toward a low carbon economy, pressure on fossil intensive business models, more economic opportunity for low carbon uh, mm-hmm. solutions. And I think that's the piece that is, is, is missing from this conversation sometime is you think about Paris and you think about a global effort. What Paris really did was climate change internationally used to be this big debate between two teams. It was like a soccer match. Developed countries on the one hand, uh-huh. developing countries on the others, fighting about who was in charge of, of having to solve this problem. What Paris did was change that from a head-to-head fight into a race. We're all working together, and now the question is, which countries can actually get ahead in being the clean energy superpowers of the 21st century? Who's going to actually capture the economic opportunity, the enormous economic opportunity that's going to come from this transition and these new industries? And so at the end of the day, every country should want to be part of that race because of the economic dividends that it creates. So I saw a chart yesterday from Torsten Slock of Deutsche Bank. Uh, basically showing the U.S. gets only about 10% of our energy supply from renewables. Am I remembering that more or less correctly? That's from wind and solar. If you look at zero carbon, including nuclear and hydro, the number is uh, the number is closer to 40%. Right. But we, oh, really? That much? Because we've had pretty robust nuclear and hydro, not as much as France has on the nuclear side, or right. hydro so dependent on the local geology. But we've had that for decades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what has been the marginal increase in low-carbon or zero-carbon energy sources over the past decade or so? Well, so the two big things that you've seen happen in the U.S. energy mix are, one, the rapid increase of renewables bringing onto the grid, and the the rate of change and adoption of renewables is very fast, even though we're still, you know, we're still moving up at a relatively low base. And the second is the, the adoption of and build out of natural gas as a baseload, cheaper baseload energy source to coal. Which is primarily manifesting itself in the transition of the big electrical generation plants that used to be mostly coal-fired and now have seemed to dramatically move towards gas. Is that fair? Correct. Correct. So those are the two the two big dynamics is gas driving coal out of the energy mix and renewables coming onto the grid rapidly. That's that's sort of the story of the, the last decade. I think the story of the next decade is really going to be about what happens, not the future of utilities, but the utilities of the future. Because huh. we're going to move increasingly toward a scenario where we are electrifying everything. And so the grid and the grid applications are going to become less straightforward of you have a point source where you generate a bunch of electrons and then you figure out a transmission and distribution system. Mm-hmm. We're going to have increasingly distributed generation. You're going to have uh, sources, uh, you know, uh, sources of power and sources of storage that are plugging into the grid in different ways, which will create new stresses, but also a bunch of new opportunities different. That will be one of the things that will make the next decade different from the last. So we converted to natural gas about two or three years ago. Not only do we do that, I ran a, uh, a backup generator uh, on top of that. And I noticed not only am I not burning home heating oil, I'm burning gas, the price is a fraction of what it was. And if you live anywhere north of the Mason-Dixon line and want to heat a pool, oh, my God, I used to get $1,000 oil deliveries, it seemed like, every other day. And now it costs me 200 bucks to keep the pool at 86 degrees into November. It's so incredibly cheap. Why hasn't this transition taken place faster, or are we going as fast as we can? Well, the good news is that the transition has both economics and physics on its side. And so the reason why you're seeing that and the reason why zero carbon renewable energy is increasingly the lowest cost source of generation to add into the grid in places around the world from India to Chile where new solar beats on a levelized cost uh, the build out of new coal or other sources. That's amazing. So the, the, the market is driving that, but also the the zero carbon energy sources are technology. And so part of the reason why is you've seen this rapid reduction in the cost of wind and solar and battery storage because the technology is just advancing very rapidly. And Mm -hmm. so the zero carbon energy sources have technology at their back as well. That's the good news. The bad news is that uh, even though this transition, it's not moving nearly fast enough to put us on a trajectory that would keep the increase in global temperatures to the rate that we identified in the Paris Agreement or to the rate of even a more ambitious set of targets that are what the global body of science is telling us you need to avoid the worst impacts. So what aren't we doing that we should be doing? And what I mean by that is not just, hey, everybody go buy a Tesla or a GM 
vaults, but what is the government not doing to provide incentives to accelerate what's already taking place on an economic and market-driven set of functions? Ultimately, what's going to drive the speed of the transition is government policies that provide long-term stability in prioritizing more sustainable sources of energy and more sustainable sources of economic activity. And you know, around the world, we're seeing less than a, a coherent global coordination on policy, and so we're a long way from that being the case. But the other thing that's going to help accelerate it, and it gets to the work we're really doing at BlackRock, is a greater understanding and a greater clarity uh, within financial markets mm -hmm. about the magnitude that uh, of the risk that actually already exists or is coming. And our view is as that uh, becomes clearer, we're going to see a big reallocation of capital based on risk and based on financial markets fully reflecting those risks in the market. So let's focus on that for a moment. We've seen in the insurance space, more than anywhere else, big increase in rates, big set of changes as to who insurers will cover. And I'm not just talking about residential waterfront property across the board. And then the reinsurers also showing a giant uptick in their premiums. So while a big chunk of the marketplace may be uh, dawdling or not paying attention to it, it's clear in the insurance sector they are clearly well aware of the risks that are taking place and have already acted on that, how long do you expect it to take to transition from insurance as a frontline recipient of the impact and costs of climate change to the rest of the sectors in the marketplace? Well, look, I would say you're starting to see that insurance, but I think we're going to see it accelerate much more significantly as well. Most of the financial models and the financial uh, approaches that we've taken are either backward looking or they rely on this assumption of climactic stability, that the mm -hmm. basic stability we've seen around physical impacts and, and threats will accelerate the way it has in the past. And that's no longer a viable option, which is going to require us to rethink a lot of basic questions about finance. So you raised the question of mortgages and waterfront property. Well, you know, 2020 is an important year. In lots of respects, but one, think about the 30-year mortgage. It's kind of the, you know, one of the centerpieces of our modern financial system. 2020 is the first year where if you're issuing a 30-year mortgage, that's going to touch 2050, Amazing. which we've always thought of as a sort of long-out, uh, long-term area uh, uh, mile marker for impacts of climate change. Well, today, we a 30-year, you know, a 30-year <laughs> fixed touches that. What are the implications of that? Well, you're right. We're starting to see it in insurance. But what are the implications when there are big areas of the uh, country where even if you can get a 30-year mortgage, you can't get mortgage insurance that, that, uh, that resets annually? What are the implications for municipal finance uh, if risks that felt like they were long-term, 20, 30 years out, start to get pulled forward? Mm -hmm. And our, uh, you know, our, our sense, having looked at this, is that we're going to see one thing the financial markets are good at is pulling forward risk once they can identify and measure it. And so what you're starting to see in isolated areas in insurance and otherwise is likely to move much more quickly as bigger, you know, bigger elements of the financial market starts to recognize and identify these risks as real. And even if they are 5, 10, 15 years forward, that's going to affect duration. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about sustainable investing. Your boss, Larry Fink, made a pretty big splash with his annual letter on sustainability what does BlackRock want to accomplish with that sort of communication? What was Larry trying to say? Well, we wanted to communicate our view as a fiduciary, as an entity that our principal goal is to try to think forward on behalf of our clients to what will be important to delivering them their long-term financial goals. And in that context, we wanted to communicate two things. One, our view that climate risk is investment risk. And that's going to have big implications on how we think about a lot of these core questions of how we think about duration assets, how we think about risk going forward. And the second is that there is a larger societal shift right now toward a focus on sustainability and changing expectations of companies that we believe will escalate, that there are structural drivers behind that, that will escalate across time and therefore companies that are not thinking forward to what that means for their business model and trying to get ahead of that 
are going to struggle to deliver long-term profitability because this is going to become an increasingly important part of the financial conversation going forward. So this seems to be an evolution in thought at BlackRock. Fink has written a number of different letters over the years. He's talked about this as an issue. He sent letters out to various CEOs and other things. But it seems that this year, 2020, is really a tipping point. The content and the tone of his letter is urgent, the right word, and, and much more emphatic. In the past, it was almost like mentioned as part of it. This time, it was front and center. Yeah, and I think that reflects that there were a lot of things in 2019 that we saw escalate and come together to really enforce the, the, the conviction in this view and the urgency of the view. One, you saw, you know, an escalation in the physical impacts we talked about um, from California, Australia to California, California otherwise. World's on fire. Uh, two, this idea about where regulatory bodies going to really step in went from the future tense, maybe they will in the future, to the present tense. You saw mm. the Bank of England begin to actually regulate financial entities requiring stress tests. You see uh, pension regulation across the globe. Obviously, the United States is an outlier in that respect. But if you're a global company and you operate in Europe, for example integration of these types of issues into your disclosure and your investment process will become you know, sort of required reading. That changed in 2019. And we saw these sets of issues culminate and spill over into the global geopolitical scale. At the G20, you saw a citizen movement of 6 million you know, students, grassroots, um, walking out and demanding action. There's an escalation in focus on this that we assess, again, from an investment perspective as being durable and, and actually this being the front of something that is going to be a significant shift in investor preferences over time. So let's talk about another shift. Sustainable investing used to be pitched as, hey, here's how to align your capital investments with your morals, your ethical beliefs, your values. Now, it's really being contextualized as, look at how well ESG funds have done over the past few years. This is a source of alpha. This is a source of market-beating performance. How do you see this being talked about by BlackRock's investors? I think one of the most significant things we communicated in the set of communications earlier this year was this view as a fiduciary, as a view of, of looking at uh, the long-term financial interest of our clients first and foremost, that we believe that sustainability and integrating sustainability is likely to be the best way to position you for long-term financial return. And you're right, that is different. That's different than the traditional conversation, which always came with an implicit assumption that you were trading value for values. Our view is that that's in the rearview mirror. Now, the question of how you integrate sustainability and how you do that in ways that actually capture material insights and, and not noise is hard, it's complicated, like any other area of investing. But our view increasingly is that you can build a portfolio, integrate sustainability, and at least do as well and likely position yourself to do better uh, over the long term because of all the structural elements we're talking about. And that underlies the conviction of everything we're doing across risk and integration, products and, and services we're offering, is that underlying core view. So here's the pushback I've read. Not my view, but I've read. Hey, you know, ESG has been outperforming because really it's a closet technology index. And if you own a lot of Apple and Google and Microsoft and Netflix, hey, of course your portfolio is killing it. What's the response to that claim? First, our conviction around the materiality of these issues is not based principally or solely on limited period of performance over, over a limited period of time. It's based on thinking about what are the underlying drivers of these changes, climate change, the physical and the technological risks, the change in investor sentiment that is connected to you know, the largest transfer of wealth in human history from the baby boom to the millennial generation. And so we don't principally pin it on that. The second, more specifically, though, is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, is it sort of a, a closet tech play? Is it just a momentum play that there's a sort of an ESG momentum right. trade on and the like? And I think our view on this is that elements of that may all be true in the market today, but we believe that those structural factors are going to actually sustain this shift for some significant period of time. And so the traditional view that says, look, um, uh, these, you know, uh, if these if these if these assets or these stocks actually are getting greater demand, then you'll actually have a sin stock premium, and maybe you'll see some bounce back. What that misses is if we're on the front end of a long-term structural trend. If you believe that structural trend is fully priced into the market today, then of course um, 
then of course you wouldn't see these relative changes in value. There's a lot of reasons to believe, including from financial literature around other long-term structural trends like mm -hmm. demographics, that this is that the transition itself will be a period where you'll see this sort of uh, lack of a trade-off persist for some significant period of time. That, that is absolutely fascinating. Let's talk about a quote that I really like from your team. Quote, the sustainable investing team is focused on identifying drivers of long-term return associated with environmental, social, and governance issues, integrating them throughout BlackRock's investment processes, and creating solutions for our clients to achieve sustainable investment return. What I'm reading between the lines there, or maybe it's more explicit, this isn't just about the ESG portfolios. You are looking at ESG as a potential risk factor across the full portfolio, whether it's ESG or not. Well, that was a mouthful, but I'm glad you picked up on that because that's exactly how uh, we are thinking about it. Fundamentally, we, if we come at this from the perspective of risk, then our view is we need to integrate this in our core risk processes the same way that we think about any other core element of financial risk. So what that means is if we identify that, for example, the physical risks of climate change that you can pinpoint to an asset or you can pinpoint to a company based on the geographic footprint are measurable and real, we want to integrate that into how all of our active investors are thinking about building their portfolios, which doesn't mean that the end output of a particular strategy has a dedicated sustainable focus, but it does mean that this is risk. And so like any other element of risk. So let me give you a concrete example. We built a tool internally that allows us to stress test all of our portfolios for different carbon price scenarios. What happens in the future if you see a carbon price imposed at, a, at certain different levels? We run those stress test scenarios on all of our portfolios, not because all of our portfolios have a dedicated sustainable objective, objective, but because that's a risk factor that all of our portfolio managers should think about and have the tools and data in front of them to know, are, is there risk in my portfolio that I might not see if I'm not using this lens? So we're focusing a lot on the E. Yep. Let, let's move forward and talk about the S and the G for a moment. I've had people who are not sustainable investors. I've had portfolio managers who are not ESG investors tell me they still focus on the governance aspect because according to them, it's a risk factor. If you have a diverse board of directors and uh, pretty close to gender parity, both in pay and executive hiring, you're much less likely to have a Me Too scenario or any other governance risk that seems to have affected a number of companies, both tech startups and, and more seasoned traditional companies. Yeah, look, part of the way I think about this is I don't start at ESG. We start at risk, and we start at where can we develop conviction that sustainability-related factors are material. And if you do that, then you can build out. And what, the way I think about ESG is just a way of bucketing those risks. So um, the, the conversations that I think are actually the least helpful are, well, is that a G risk or an E risk, right? If, you're, if your board has uh, effective management, risk management practices that include climate, well, is that a G or an E? It doesn't matter. If it's risk and you believe it's material, you want to understand if a company is thinking about that. Similar to your example, if we know that diverse groups of people make better decisions across time. They may take a little longer to make them, but they make better decisions across time. We want to understand how a company is structured in terms of their governance and in terms of their employment practices to actually encourage more diversity of thought across their, their company and management. We come at it and say that's sustainability-related risk. And then ultimately, you know, ESG is, in some ways, it's a kind of a, a naming convention to try to identify these and, and bucket them in ways that, you know, helps people understand what so, they are. So let's talk about that naming convention. One of the pushbacks I've heard is who gets to decide what the E and the S and the G is. They all mean different things to different people. How do you operate in that sort of nebulous area? What definitions matter? What are you looking at when you're looking at, let's say, S for social or G for governance? Sure. It's definitely the case that there are too many frameworks out there, and we will all benefit from bringing greater coordination consolidation into as we get better at measuring and identifying these issues. Um, on the other hand, I think that 
it's also important to, to, to put in perspective, you know, it took 80 years to get Gap to be like, you know, completely right. And you, we can't let the enemy, be, uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. With the disclosure that is out there and the data that is out there, we can measure a lot about how companies are managing material sustainability risks. And that, as a, as, a, as a fiduciary and an investor, that's our responsibility. So, you know, when we think about these issues, we talked a lot about E, when we talk about S, you know, a lot of this really is about effective management of the way we think about it, effective management of your internal stakeholders, your external stakeholders. Who are your internal stakeholders? Mostly your employees. Mm-hmm. So diversity, inclusion, pay, flexible workplace practices, those are places where we know that contributes to employee retention, employee engagement. Those are connected to drivers of return. External stakeholders about the communities you operate in and about the stakeholders that who are your customers, right? Um, and that that is principally about how you manage your supply chain and how you manage the uh, the impact of your operations uh, in communities. So that's really how we think about the S distilled down. Obviously, there's very specific metrics under each of those. So technology obviously plays a big role in um, clean air, clean water, uh, dealing with recyclables, as uh, and of course energy, as an investor, how do you look at the role of tech impacting sustainable investing? Well, one of the most interesting things about uh, the the issue of the decarbonization of the economy is that when you when you talk about that issue in the energy transition, people's minds principally go to windmills, <laughs> solar panels, electric cars, electric cars, and but also you know a lot about um, energy production, the energy production system. The actually the lowest cost and most significant opportunities for decarbonization today operate in the broad space of efficiency. And in efficiency, it's technology plays that have the greatest opportunity for scale. So think about how do we make the buildings we live and work in more energy efficient? How do we reduce the, the efficiency of the materials we use, whether it's in industrial processes or consumer processes? Literally, there was a giant article, I want to say it was out of UCLA, about cement production is a huge producer of, of CO2, and a new technology came up with a way to turn cement into a carbon sink. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stuff is kind of fascinating. We don't think about cement, the concrete you walk on on the sidewalk, as, oh, it took a lot of CO2 to produce this. Right. So if you think about technology and efficiency coming together and the opportunities both for um, emissions reductions, but also um, breakthroughs that can improve the um, in, improve the efficiency of industrial processes uh, make you money. <laughs> right. uh, that can re- re- uh, reduce the energy consumption of a business, which is an input cost in a number sure. of businesses that is a meaningful um, pretty much on, every business. on the balance sheet. Yeah, right. Um, the ways in which technology can be disruptive um, are really uh, are really exciting, and that's also why this question of how the economy moves toward. Uh, more carbon efficient uh, activity touches every element of uh, of our economy. This is not just about oil companies and utilities. This is about you know if you uh, if you run a business like like Bloomberg, right? And uh, how are you thinking about how technology can help make your business more efficient, uh, make you operate with lower carbon footprint, uh, help you save money? Uh, help you, you know, help you engage your employees. Those are all things that sort of every business should be thinking about. It seems pretty, pretty universal. Let, let me, uh, let me switch up on you a little bit. You've been lecturing at the Kennedy School um, about sustainable investing, and you've been providing advice to institutions. Uh, when you're speaking to an institution or you're speaking to a bunch of young, fresh scrubbed grad students, do you get the same questions? Do you get the same pushback? How do those two wildly disparate groups uh, look similar, and how are they so different? <laughs> That's interesting. I, so, look, um, a lot of the conversations in kind of tradi- in more um, traditional financial circles among our clients and otherwise do start from uh, a presumption of of skepticism because there has been this dominant overhang in finance that has assumed that as soon as you hear the word sustainability, we're talking about that trade-off, that Mm -hmm. that trade-off between value and values. I think a lot of that skepticism is healthy because it forces this space to be very rigorous about where do you actually see um, real meaningful material impact as opposed to just noise. But that skepticism is often kind of um, overhangs uh, a a lot of conversations in those types of um, uh, fora. 
you know, among uh, among younger people and students, I think that there you what you you know you hear is um, a degree of urgency uh-huh. and uh, bordering on panic on this set of issues that is forcing that forces a kind of questioning of a lot of basic assumptions uh, of how finance works, about how institutions work, uh, and I think that that's um, yeah, it's a different perspective. Um, but it's also relevant to this conversation because, um, you know, society tends to shape institutions as opposed to the other way around. And so I think we all would do well to pay attention to that um, and that impulse because it's likely to get louder rather than uh, than softer. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Brian Deese. He is the head of uh, sustainable investing at BlackRock. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things ESG related. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and I was saying off mic, I thought a decade ago we should have done a Manhattan Project-like approach to the fundamental sciences of alternative energy. How do we make solar panels more efficient? How do we make battery storage more effective? We're doing these really incremental improvements and the ironic thing about that is a decade later, hey, 1% here, 2% there, do that for 15, 20 years, it really compounds and becomes a significant change. And you already see it in the cost of solar. Like you could put solar panels on a roof and have them be very cash flow positive in most of the country. I mean, if you're in the northernmost parts, it, it may or may not pay for itself quickly, but most of the country, it's now pretty reasonable, isn't it? Well, I would say two things. The first is part of the reason why solar and wind uh, uh, have gotten so cheap is we did a version of what you said. Coming out of the financial crisis uh, in 2009, 2010, the US, with the U.S. in the lead, we made an extraordinary almost $90 billion investment in, um, in basic and applied R&D into clean energy sources. The biggest, you know, the biggest mistake is we did it once and we didn't, we didn't sustain didn't it uh, right. over, over, uh, over, over a decade or more. But we know that actually uh, effectively allocating dollars into the basic R&D space in this area does pay dividends. You can draw a line between those types of basic uh, um, uh, research efforts uh, and innovations that then uh, flow through. And you know we're gonna. It's gonna take continuing to to uh, to double down and double down on that because one of the points that you're making is as as the uh, installed solar gets cheaper, as you get more uh, intermittent um, sources of power on the grid, we're gonna need more and more innovation in storage and in distributed structures of energy delivery to get over that. Um, and we're going to have to come down the cost curve sort of again and again to get that right. So let's talk about automotive and aviation and trucking. Um, clearly, companies, I know you don't want to talk about specific uh, companies, but when I look at the space, it's not just Tesla. It's just about every manufacturer either has a hybrid or an all-electric today or plans for it by 2025. Is this argument about electrical cars over we're going to be electrified and there isn't a whole lot of um lifespan left in the internal combustion engine or am i overstating that 
Well, look, I think the I think that the I think that the 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 direction of travel is clear toward electrifying everything. The question of the the pace of that is going to be an intersection between technology and uh, the innovation that comes out of companies uh, and also policy, including, for example, you know, the how much foresight is there into investing forward in the infrastructure to enable electric vehicles to, you know, become more ubiquitous. One thing I'll say that we're not thinking enough about and that we didn't, you know, when I was back in, uh, in policy in the middle of the 2010s, we didn't think about that policymakers in the 2020s will have to think about is the intersection of electrification and autonomy. Yeah, that's that's pretty obvious. I knew you were going to go there because you have these self-driving cars relying on, you know, signs and paint. Why aren't there RF devices implanted across all the highways in the United States? Think about how much more efficient we're going to be if autonomous driving cars can can safely follow two feet behind and put a bunch of people in a larger vehicle and move it more efficiently. Right. And if and look, there's there's an infrastructural element and the complexity of autonomy. Uh, you know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't understate that. But in particular, when when what happens when you bring electrification and autonomy together, is you can dramatically reduce the you dramatically increase the competitiveness of an electric vehicle because an electric autonomous vehicle is a multiple uh, more cost effective. Uh, than electric vehicle compared to a, a uh, to a conventional powered vehicle, and so my 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 sense is that the the path toward toward electrification in the transport sector is not going to be straight. There's, we're going to see some discontinuities when you see those types of technologies come together and you know potentially disrupt uh, the traditional modes of transport in a more fundamental way. So we're seeing trucking move towards both electric and autonomy. What about aviation? There have been some small, um, I mean, they almost look like big drones or small personal craft that have been playing with electrification. Is it is the technology even imaginable that we can one day fly across the Atlantic in an electric plane? Or is the physics too imposing? Look, that that technology is hard, and I think it's farther it's it's farther afield. It doesn't exist today. Mm-hmm. The point that I think is important for context is that today, globally, uh, airline emissions represent two percent of global emissions. So not a giant. So uh, technologically, ultimately, that's something that will need to be solved. Um, it's not a it's 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 not a near term thing. That the the technology is pretty complicated. On the other hand, in terms of looking at the big categories of emissions, it's not, um, it's not something that has to be at the immediate or top of your list to really accelerate the decarbonization. So, so what's the top three on that list? The, 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 the top three are uh, efficiency. You got to uh, massively reduce the uh, the footprint of our built environment uh, in ways that, to the point you were making earlier, are already in the money. You just right. got to figure out ways to overcome barriers. Second is you got to decarbonize the electricity production system. Mm-hmm. Um, the economics are already pushing in that direction, but it moves more quickly. And third, electrify everything in transport. Transport, quite quite fascinating. All right, I want to get to my favorite questions before we have to wrap up. Um, we ask these of all our guests and kind of think of this as our speed round. That's revealing of who you are. Uh, tell us what you're streaming these days. What are you What are you listening to, either Netflix or podcasts or whatever? So uh, I, um, I am catching up um, on uh, Game of Thrones. I'm mm-hmm. almost done. I know that I'm, I know I'm a little behind. Uh, I'm way behind you, so don't, don't feel <laughs> bad. I'm a little behind the curve. I just finished Breaking Bad, so you know, you, that gives you a sense that I've sort of, my cue is a little dated, but I'm working right. through it. <laughs> um, what, tell us the most important thing people don't know about Brian Deese. Uh, that people don't know. Well, uh, uh, the most important, the most important thing in my life uh, is that uh, I've got two kids. Mm-hmm. I've got a seven-year-old uh, and a uh, a four-year-old, and uh, I can uh, I can measure my kids' age by um, uh, by uh, milestones uh, in policy. My uh, my da- my daughter was born uh, right after the reelect in 2012, and my son was born two weeks before we uh, left for Paris to try to negotiate the Paris Agreement. That, that's pretty good. So who were um, some of your early mentors who influenced the course of your career? Uh, well, I was, um, I was fortunate to have, had to have uh, great professors in college who really uh, brought out uh, 
uh, me and the way that I thought about things. I, um, uh, I had a, uh, an early mentor, a woman named Nancy Birdsall, who's an ec- a great economist who uh, thinks about um, how developing economies uh, fail and succeed in increasing human potential, uh, who really helped me uh, think in different ways. And I, I've, been, I've been blessed uh, across several people who have been at the height of American economic policy from uh, Gene Sperling to Larry Summers to uh, uh, Neera Tandon and others. I've, 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 had a, I've had a string of pretty great bosses. Uh. What about on the sustainable investing side? What investors influence how you look at the world through the lens of ESG? Well, I, you know, for me, uh, coming to BlackRock and the both the uh, diversity of thought and the diversity of investment approaches at BlackRock really is a kind of um, a uh, is a um, unmatched privilege to actually just be able to work. You know, if you think about uh, BlackRock, is often thought of uh, for the scale, the seven mm-hmm. trillion and and the large uh, index business, but we have one point eight trillion dollars in active mandates across uh, fixed income and equities, alternatives. Uh, um, uh, almost every geography um, and uh, almost every uh, asset class and investment style. So I have I have learned an enormous amount in this period from just from the 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 the, the, the leaders and the innovators across the board and inside the firm. What are some of your favorite books? What do you like to read? Uh, what are some of your favorite authors? So I I tend to like uh, I, I I have I have up until so, somewhat recently um, been more of a nonfiction guy. Mo- uh, most love, of my guests seem to say the same thing. Uh, I really like John McPhee, um, and uh, he's a he's a sort of nature uh, nature writer who's written some uh, incredible histories, including of uh, Alaska and how um, how transportation works uh, in the U.S. Um, I'm reading right now, though, um, a book called The Overstory uh, by Richard Power, mm-hmm. which is a it's it's dense, but it's an incredible it's a beautiful book. That's that's uh, that's in the fiction category. Um, give us a John McPhee book. Uncommon Carriers. It's a set of vignettes uh, from him traveling across the country uh, with people who transport things from uh, barges that go up and down the Mississippi River to uh, chemical tanks, uh, chemical tank trucks that, uh, or coal trains. Uh, pretty weedy, but a fascinating. Huh. Uh, fascinating. Quite, quite interesting. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you are not uh, thinking about sustainable investing? Uh, mostly spend time with my family, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we like to get outside, uh, uh, get uh, get to either to the mountains or the ocean, uh, hike, ski, uh, or otherwise. Does sound like fun. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, <laughs> uh, I failed enough this morning to fill up the, uh, <laughs> the uh, that uh, that category. One would imagine policy and politics is just. Yeah, so, a constant battle of winning and losing. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about um, that, that uh, for every major achievement, you know, we uh, we had uh, in, you know, uh, we uh, in the same year in the Obama administration passed the Affordable Care Act, something I thought was a great achievement, and at the same time failed to get a uh, climate and cap and trade legislation done. And so you get used to this uh, sort of this give and take of trying to understand that there's a bigger picture. You're not going to get everything. Uh, and one of the things I learned there very directly is if you can advance progress incrementally mm-hmm. and you can do it in a way that uh, doesn't violate the Hippocratic Oath, you should grab that and take those opportunities because ultimately, while you have to have a big vision, the world moves in you know lots of uh, incremental steps along the way. So here's our most challenging philosophical question. Uh-oh. What are you most optimistic about today relative to climate change and sustainable investing? And what has you most pessimistic? So I would say, you know, what, what I'm, I'm optimistic about the fact that um, if, we, if we looked back a decade and we had said, what do we think the rate of change in technological innovation would be, particularly in these areas that we've talked about that are driving um, – uh, carbon-efficient solutions, we would have consistently underestimated the degree to which human innovation and technological innovation can come together to change things. Um, and I'm also optimistic, frankly, that um, we're seeing a, a degree of um, focus, energy, including a lot of fear and a lot of anger, but energy around this set of issues where um, I think that that's going to drive in a durable way this to the front and center of conversations in financial markets uh, in politics as well. Hmm. Um, 
The thing that I'm the most worried about or the most pessimistic is that we've got a, you know, we, we have a, we have a more fundamental or, you know, existential challenge right now around whether institutions, whether they be institutions of, uh, in, uh, in the private sector or institutions in particularly in government can actually effectively drive change, particularly in democracies. And uh, we've, we're facing some some real you know existential challenges, not just in you know not just in any particular country, and I think that those have to do with complicated social and global dynamics. But um, we're gonna have to, if we're going to actually get on the right side of this issue, um, we're gonna have to have a degree of coordinated action with institutions actually working together. That um, it's easy to get a little dark about that these sure. days. Sure. And our final questions. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in sustainable investing? Uh, that's great. It's a growth area. Uh, study up. Um, uh, and and, and, the, and the, the advice I would say is study up with a degree of skepticism and rigor around this set of issues because what we need is more people who are really invested, really passionate, but also come at it with a dispassion. And our final question, what do you know about the world of sustainable investing today that you might have wished you knew 10, 15 years ago? That, uh, that you, can, uh, you can unlock uh, a lot of progress uh, by just uh, putting facts and data out there and being clear about the implications. That, uh, that ultimately we're going to need uh, policy solutions to get this done, but there's a lot uh, that finance can do by being clear about risk and data and analytics. Quite fascinating. Thank you, Brian. This has really been very, very interesting. We have been speaking with Brian Deese. He is the global head of sustainable investing at BlackRock. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can see any of our previous 300 such conversations we've held over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Leave us a review on Apple iTunes. Be sure and check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this together with me each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Sam Shivraj is our booker producer. Nick Falco is our engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 